What's going on, cinema lovers and moviegoers? Welcome back to another brand new episode of the Cinemates Podcast. I'm Mike Jose Collins, and joined with me today is not, as always, Jake Schultz. Instead, we're doing a new episode of The Drafting Floor. Yes, a brand new draft show that we're going to try to do on this channel. Uh, since the release of Drive Away Dolls, a new Ethan Cohen movie, uh, we've decided to do a little bit of a Cohen draft here. And if you can hear somebody shuffling around in the background, that is the person who got me into Cohen Brothers movies. Uh, the person who showed me my first, I can't remember if it was Raising Arizona or The Big Lebowski, but it was definitely one of those two. But it's my dad, Paul Collins. Welcome to the show, Dad. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, and it, it's interesting. Well, I was going to ask you that about um, your early movie experiences and that, because I've, I've listened to the show for a while now, and I've listened to you talk about different movies that uh, you've seen and sort of experienced over the years and were influenced by. And um, I was just wondering about that. As every time I heard you, I was like, I was trying to remember when you saw that. For example, the Planet of the Apes movies or or now even the Coen Brothers movies. Uh, when did all that happen? I believe Planet of the Apes was at your mom's house. And there was like a marathon of all of the movies back to back to back to back. So I have a, a distinct memory of the first one. And then I have like ins and outs of the other couple Planet of the Apes movies. Uh, so, so I've revisited them lately and that's, I think why I got into them. But for some reason, the first one sticks out into my head and that, uh, but yeah, for big Le or for, uh, Coen brothers movies, I can't remember if it was big Lebowski or raising Arizona. I think it was raising Arizona that you showed us first. Yeah. I think, uh, even, uh, back in those days when I would show, um, you guys raising Arizona or even the big Lebowski, I don't think it was always, it always went down well with some adults that we were hanging around with, uh, cause you know, the, the content of the movies weren't, uh, weren't always appropriate for certain age groups. But, um, I think, uh, I felt it was such great, uh, filmmaking and a, a really, uh, pleasurable films to watch on many levels and just sort of even for younger people uh, you know not young young obviously but uh, to just get a sense of what a, a movie experience is like what a film experience is like and the coen brothers really really did that well so mm -hmm. what do you remember it being raising arizona or big lebowski i i definitely remember a big lebowski um we were living in bowmanville at that time and i remember it came out in 98, so probably on video about a year later or so. And I remember showing it to friends of mine with Hannah kind of running around in the background as a three or four year old. And um, so that that's the memory of that. And, and the Racing Arizona, I think I remember less well where we would have had that if it was on video or such. Uh, but definitely uh, uh, Big Lebowski uh, for sure. Uh, Racing Arizona, I think, would be more uh, a little bit more appropriate for certain age groups. Yeah, that, that one, I did, I'm pretty sure we did own that one because I remember watching that mm -hmm. one back to back to back. But we did yeah. also own Big Lebowski, but I don't think we were allowed to watch that one back to no. back to back. No, for sure. Def definitely not. Uh, but yes, thank you for joining me for the draft show. We did want Hannah to come on this episode. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. she was a little busy. We'll probably get her and you on for another, uh, maybe something that you also showed us in the future again. Uh, but when it comes to Coen Brothers movies, what what is it to you that, that you're... That, that makes you want to go see a Coen Brothers movie? Well, it's interesting. Um, I I think if I think back, probably the first film I saw was their first film, um, major film, I, I imagine, and perhaps they had others. Um, 
but it was Blood Simple in 1984, and I probably saw it uh, around 1986. And I think what what impressed me uh, about that film is all the elements of Coen Brothers movies were in that film. And I don't know if that's one of your films that that you've seen, Michael, but uh, Blood Simple, it's very um, uh, straightforward filmmaking, not a lot of money, obviously, uh, with it. Uh, good enough to have some some actors that, that have been around, like M.M. Walsh, but but definitely a new, a, you could tell they were new filmmakers and and just sort of you know getting out there with their with their vision of things, and they they did really well. And all the elements that we kind of know in Coen Brother movies were there right from the beginning. Um, it also starred Francis McDormand as well, who of course is a longtime uh, Coen Brothers collaborator. Um, it, and that that the quirkiness of the dialogue, um, the the shaky camera technique that they had, where you have you know the camera going down the road or through rooms, um, the the and what I mean by the dialogue was um, the ability to kind of uh, introduce characters and have those characters with just a few lines be so memorable and not without really hit right from Blood Simple on. And again, with the sort of the darkness in behind it all, uh, because it is a again a. a a true crime story, uh, Blood Simple is, uh, lots of murder. and um, But in doing so, uh, they they not only pulled the, the, the viewer in almost like a film noir, it's a very dark uh, movie, uh, very well told. But that that's kind of what drew me in. And it was the, I keep using, going back to the word quirkiness, but it was the quirkiness of that, that, uh, that film that I thought there's something here. There's something with these with the, these two and how they make a film, how they produce a film, what it looks like, what it feels like, um, the dialogue and the what they get from the actors. I just thought, yeah, I got to keep going. I got to see what they're going to do next. And and what they did next was raising Arizona. Damn. See, yeah, that's the thing about the Coen Brothers. They have such a distinct style, and I think you you nailed it on the head. Where it's these almost film noir movies set in this weird, bizarre, quirky world that they have. And it, it does work. And I think it works for me, even in 2024, uh, especially with this new movie, Drive Away Dolls, that came out. I didn't necessarily give it a great review, but I was pretty okay with the movie. And I liked a lot of the elements that they drew in from from their older movies there. Mm-hmm. But wh- why don't we jump into the draft if you're ready, <laughs> if you're okay I believe to, I go, <laughs> to go into the draft here. Uh, so you will have first pick of your favorite Coen Brothers movie. Basically, what we're going to do, instead of a snake draft, since there's only two of us, you're going to pick, I'm going to pick, you're going to pick, I'm going to pick, okay. you're going to pick. We'll do our we'll do our three movies, three movies that we'll draft. I'll make a little graphic. I'll put it out on Twitter. We'll see what people like, see what people don't like. But at the end, you can give me your top five as well, or just a movie that maybe didn't make your list that you do recommend for a Coen Brothers movie. And essentially, why why we picked these movies, why we liked these movies, and... Um, so yeah, so you got you got first pick. So why don't you give me your first Coen Brothers movie, your number one overall draft pick? Sure, and and I think it'll be a surprise to uh, to you, to your mom, to uh, your brother Jeff and your sister Hannah. But uh, it's not The Big Lebowski. Um, I'm going with Raising Arizona as my first pick. When I saw this film, and I saw it in the theaters in in 1987 when it came out, I was 20 years old, and it. When you go see a film like this in the theater, it's a real cinema experience. It's a real theater experience, and it runs the gamut of emotions, like uh, you know, from um, from a, a bit of a love story to um, the the kind of depths that people go to. Like we have this couple that are trying to have a baby and can't, and the depression that follows um, with his wife uh, Ed, who's played by Holly Hunter, 
and then sort of the edginess uh, of a typical Coen Brothers movie is going to be violent. There's going to be uh, uh, some some different uh, protagonists in it. And they all kind of come together with this other darkness that is often in, in uh, Coen Brothers movies. And that darkness is often sort of a, of the mind or, or of the person's own uh, willingness or unwillingness to kind of settle and be in this world. And and that comes through this protagonist's character uh, called, uh, it's played by Randall Tex Cobb. And he's sort of this evil uh, bounty hunter that's out to uh, to find uh, the missing uh, baby. And the whole story is the premise of the story. Uh, I'm not sure. Have you seen the film? Like, well, of course you've seen it, but have you seen it recently? <laughs> is the, my question. Yes, I, ha- I have. Yeah, I it's it a movie. hold it. Um, as you seeing it recently, it it really, <clears throat> I believe, holds up as well. It's kind of film that doesn't feel like oh, you're you're in this time period, and it's it's sort of you're seeing it. Um, so the character played by Randall Tex Cobb is more sort of in the character of played by Nicolas Cage High's uh, mind, right? Sort of as he's struggling with, with, you know, where he wants to be in the world and who he wants to be and, and how he wants to live a, a married life, essentially, um, with the love of his life uh, high. Um, there's more to it, obviously, than that. It's, it has um, John Goodman is in it and uh, William Forsyth is, 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 plays his brother. Uh, as well, Francis McDormand has a, a cameo in it as well. It it just runs it runs you over right from the beginning. <clears throat> Excuse me. A great uh, narration to begin, which is often uh, what the Coen Brothers use and narrating to bring in the film. And you're about ten minutes in before it just kind of shoots off with a bang um, uh, to bring you in um, to watching it. It's like a it could be called a popcorn movie. Uh, it could be called a, a, a film, not a film noir, but it could be called like an art house film. It's got all these elements and it, it's completely uh, unforgettable. I think you could see this probably movie. You could see this once and still remember lines from it, still, still remember scenes from it. It holds up and it holds you that well. Nicolas Cage is great. Holly Hunter is great. This kind of film where when you see these people in it, you see John Goodman um when you're watching them, you're like, these are actors. They, they can do really well. And, and you kind of respect them in anything they do after. It's, a, that, it's not a miss for anyone in this film. Um, the crooked dialogue is, is just something that really kind of comes out. As typical as a t- Coen Brothers is, and this is something we could just later when we talk about the Coen Brothers in general, the story itself, great little vignettes, great little characters, great little scenes as a whole. Does it make sense? Sure. I mean, you know, you're kidnapping a baby and that's okay. Like it's, it's just a, a very funny way that they have to, to kind of bring all these people, all these characters in and the storyline in. And when you think about it, you can't think too deeply because the whole story as a whole is kind of what the heck just happened there. Uh, and that, that takes place, I believe in a lot of Coen brothers movie, uh, argue, I would argue as well. I read recently that, um, they are, <clears throat> they're good friends, so they collaborate with Sam Raimi, and you can see that Sam Raimi esque uh, uh, as uh, sort of filmmaking style as well. In particular, they keep calling it the, the shaky camera, and that's the one where they're kind of running through backyards, down the street, down the road, and uh, it really brings to mind, uh, for example, like the original Evil Dead. Like that's what you had, right? As the camera's going through the forest, um, and and you can see that connection that they have with Sam Raimi as well. Uh, so that would be my my first pick. Uh, if you want me to go, like, ask me some questions. Why do you, why do I think it's? Uh... 
Well, I'll, I'll give my you my pitch on Raising Arizona because it was it was a movie that was on my list. I think like when it came to that movie, why it wouldn't necessarily be my number one pick for a Coen Brothers draft because I think it's almost like the least Coen Brothersy Coen movie. Uh, it based at the time that it came out, it was like I think it was a good hit. I, I, obviously, I wasn't around in the eighties or whatever, but they eventually perfected everything they're doing. All of the cartoonishness in that movie, the goofiness in that movie. Uh, they eventually perfected it. So to go back to that movie is like, oh, it's they're not necessarily at their full potential. But for the same reason why I like an actor like Bradley Cooper, it's someone who's like practicing their craft and getting incredible at their craft. And when you watch them, when you watch their work, it's like, wow, you're watching someone who deeply cares about what they're doing. And that's really what you get from Raising Arizona. It's these people not necessarily at their peak with that movie. But all of the elements that eventually come to full fruition later on in Coen Brothers movies, you get right away with Ra- Raising Arizona. Uh, I think that movie is like their most rebellious movie that they've ever made. The, just the notion of trickle down economics, class distinction, that thing, like it, it, it's packed in it. Do you think that's Nick Cage's best performance? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there was Leaving Las Vegas. He wins the Academy Award for that. Um, I saw Pig recently. I haven't seen the the film that is getting rave reviews uh, more even more recently um, as well yet. But it, it's just something. It's a performance that really sticks out. Um, he's believable. Um, he, you're drawn to his character. You trust him when he's up there. You 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 feel like you're willing to go on, on a ride for, with him. Um, I I really think it's a great performance, and I understand what you're saying about sort of the rawness of the film. But in a sense, um, I think that that allows maybe for a freedom that you don't see at times later. Where um, I'll go back to something. I, I was thinking about this. I know uh, listening to your podcast and listening to Jake and you know his thoughts on Wes Anderson and that kind of Wes Anderson film, right? That that and and I was feeling that about Wes Anderson films as well. I watched, um, I think it was Grand Budapest Hotel, and I thought, well, this maybe this is kind of getting old. Like you're you're, you're getting the understanding of what his filmmaking is like, what his characters are like. It's starting not really old, but it starts to feel, for lack of a better word, sort of mean. There's just something, an edge that I I just didn't like about it uh, going in. So I could see like, are you are you becoming over Cohen by watching too many Cohen Brothers movies? I think with this one. It's it's so raw and so new, and I'm not reflecting back on when I first saw it. I'm I'm just seeing it as a movie as itself. There's just something about, um, you know, again, lack of a better word, innocence uh, to it in their filmmaking, and just kind of going, you know, whole hog into it with these scenes. Um, it uh, I would argue that that perhaps you're tainted a little bit later, where you're you're like, am I comparing it too much to other things? And maybe if we just see it standalone without knowing the Coen brothers too much, how would it stand up? I believe really well. I mean, I know uh, even at the time I would recommend it to everybody. Not not everyone I talked to liked it, but not everyone likes the Coen brothers movies. Um, that, that's just kind of the, the way things go with film. I mean, everyone has an opinion and a, and a like. Um, I get that. But I just think it's, it's just a, a, a pleasure to watch. Um, and hilarious, and it it really kind of pulls you in. There you go. Yeah, I, I do agree. It was I would say it was my third pick, so mm-hmm. I'm oh, kind of go. bummed that you did take it that <laughs> high because it was going to be one of my choices. And I agree that you you can't watch that movie in the frame that they do get better. It's just when I do watch that movie, the I think one of the reasons why I like it is because 
you're seeing that everything that they're building towards in their next project and then their next project. And it's not, uh, a, one thing that I don't necessarily vibe with about the Coen brothers is that they aren't necessarily very political in their movies. And this movie was honestly pretty, po- it was a pretty political movie. I mean, just uh, as I said before, just the class distinction in this movie is very like up in your face and it tells you exactly what it's doing. That's a very so, good yeah, point. I mean, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I like, I like raising Arizona. I think, would have been would have been one of my picks, but I, I am glad that you yeah. took it. I was no, surprised I, I, to go go number one. Well, I, I I mean I reflected on it a lot. Well, you know today it's number one. It, it, it might change, but I, I really can't. As I sort of thought about the you know coming on here uh, tonight and doing this, as um, it, it would have to. It just keeps coming up. It's a film that I would want to see again. It's a film that I, I would watch again. It's a film that I I would in, enjoy. It's a film I enjoy thinking about. Um, and and that that kind of is what took me to make it number one was that was that this is a really enjoyable experience of a film and that's what I want out of a movie. I mean, I, and that's not really being fair to myself. I do I do like to be challenged by films as well, uh, but uh, in this case, this this film you know stands out above uh, stands above the rest for me. I like the pick. All Thank right, you. I'll go to my my first pick. So I thought you were going to take this movie first. So I wasn't expecting to take this here. But I am going to go. I I am going to go Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big Lebowski is, I think, probably the most quotable movie of all time. Um, I believe it's the greatest uh, Sherlock Holmes modern day retelling of a movie. It is the quintessential stoner movie. I'm not necessarily a big stoner movie fan, but I think this movie stands above all of those. And you don't necessarily have to even like those types of movies to enjoy it. Um, obviously, the plot is incredibly convoluted. Uh, it's about bowling. It's about, I don't know, poli- not necessarily politics, but like gangs. It has all the quintessential Cohen characters that you you like. And I think the, the biggest thing about Big Lebowski, it, it like it demands repeat viewing. It demands that you go and you watch it again. It's such an incredibly cocky movie to put out there like you you pick these people in your life like a lot of this is based on people that they actually knew and then they put into a movie um it is you're just completely immersed into the world i believe it's their best movie uh i'm i don't think that's a hot take i think a lot of people will probably agree with that i mean just the relationships between each characters the relationships between the setting it is a film noir movie it's in like a a wild western sort of style it's I, I said it before, but I think it's the most iconic dialogue. Uh, and, and it's like you're repeating the lines that you hear in this movie. And then in the movie, they're doing the same thing with things they hear. Like the dude hears um, Bush on TV and then he repeats that line to a guy who looks like Dick Cheney. Like it's just that those little niche random moments. I think it could actually be possibly the best screenplay ever written. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's an incredible allegory for American foreign power that they have it's a movie that you watch and then you just you think about forever there's so much substance that and i don't even necessarily you need to watch this movie and look for the substance you can just enjoy the movie as a comedy as a cliche (laughs) stoner movie uh and i i think that that is uh for jeff bridges uh not not just his best movie but a top five character in movies of all time it is probably the most beloved character that's ever been put out into a movie uh, for me, Big Lebowski, since you didn't take it, I'm going to have to take the number one. That's for me. 
Uh, what did you love about Big Lebowski? Because you were the person who showed me this movie. Yeah. I know that you've loved this movie. Uh, what is it about Big Lebowski for you? Oh, uh, I, I really do. And, and again, it was a big... Uh, I remember I saw it with your mom um, and your aunt um, in uh, New York City uh, in, in 1998. We were uh, on vacation there. And uh, it it was a great movie experience. And it just, uh, again, like Raising Arizona, if you didn't see it again, it would be so memorable. Like you'd, it would just pop, those lines would pop right back into your head, right? Um, you know, this aggression will not stand, that, that Bush line that he was able to kind of get back. Or, you know, another line was uh, when he's talking about the pornographer, uh, Jackie Treehorn, and he's like, you know, he treats uh, women like objects. You know, like it's it's just these lines that are just so out there and really kind of defines what the Coen brothers are. And I was thinking about that, uh, them as movie makers, like how do you sit down and write that scene where you can mention just, you know, I want the Lindenberry uh, pancakes and it's just hilarious, but on paper, it's just, I want to eat these pancakes and it works so well, you know, and that's, that's the casting, that's the direction. It's, uh, it's crazy how well the, it, it comes together. So I totally agree. And again, uh, a wonderful ride, not without the darkness, not without the violence, not without the the death, although less so than other Coen Brothers uh, movies. I mean, even Raising Arizona, the protagonist got blown up. But but here, Donnie, uh, Donnie has a heart attack. And, and that's sort of, uh, I think, the extent in terms of uh, how the deaths go that way. But it it's if. When I think of it, I think of um, the yin and yang of the characters of, of the dude and Walter. Uh, John Goodman plays uh, Walter and Jeff Bridges is uh, the dude, right? Um, or the, the little Lebowski. And the dude will just live his life. The dude will be, the dude abides, right? The, the famous line, you know, the dude abides. He's just going through life. He wants to go bowling. He just wants to have his uh, black Russians and, and everything's fine. And then you have Walter, you know, his his best friend, who is just sort of feeling everything, you know, a Vietnam veteran, just anxious, you know, his marriage fell apart. And he just like he when he when he gets confronted by something, whether it's a toe over the line on a bowling um, bowling game or whether it's, uh, you know, someone uh, uh, stealing somebody's rug, he just goes full bore. Right? He's over the top wanting to get revenge, wanting to get justice. And. The dude, the dude's character, as much as he wants to abide, slowly gets pulled into the thinking, yeah, 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 you're correct. You're right. I want to, you know, we, this is an injustice. And and he gets pulled on again and again uh, by Walter, only to have it all kind of go south on them uh, each time. So it does, uh, it does kind of bring back. And that's why um, I had, uh, when you guys were younger, I think you remember, we went to Comic-Con in 2009 and I had these little figurines of the dude and Walter and it was always that yin and yang, right? That sort of opposites. Like you could be just kind of going through life or you could be Walter where you're just feeling everything. And I think you need a, a little bit of both because they, they kind of uh, helped each other out towards the end uh, anyway. Um, yeah. But, I, yeah. I, yeah. Another thing for that movie for me is like the, the circular motif of everything, the bowling ball, the, yeah. the tumbleweeds. You find mm-hmm. this in all of their movies. And yeah. Not only is that movie incredible, it's visually stunning. It mm-hmm. is a beautiful movie to watch. It is craft meets meets everything else around just movie making. Acting-wise, you were saying, the script, it, it, it's this perfect culmination, again, of this circular motif of 
everything that the Coen brothers are doing. And I think that comes to play as their greatest, maybe magnum opus, their masterpiece of a movie. That's a, that's so a, that's a good I, take. I love that movie. Yeah. I mean, I'm picturing the scene where they have the, the beginning to run to run through the jungle by Credence, uh, Clearwater Revival just kind of started that starting off as it's going. And they're going down that road as they are in all Coen brothers movies, but the lines going by, and that kind of sense of foreboding as they're going in, I think it was the drop off the the money for to the to the hostage taker to for the ransom, and um, it, it's just that 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 scene kind of brings brings you right in as well. It and it changes the the mood a bit, right? So you could, they can bring that kind of dark to it, and then it sort of just fades with a, a flash of light to go back into into another section of the film. So it, it does hold uh, hold together really really well. That's a great pick, and you know. I'm, I'm I'm obviously tempted by it, but uh, but yeah, you're good. You're <laughs> Had good. to go raising Arizona. All right, yeah. give me give me your give me your number two. All right. Well, my number two was uh, the Big Lebowski. Um, so how does it work? If I go, if you already chose the Big Lebowski, I would have to go to my next one. Go to your next one. All right. It gets a. It, I don't. I don't want to say it gets murky, but. It's uh, it's murky. It does get murky. Uh, I I think in terms of a film, um, a Coen Brothers film, a Coen Brothers esque film, uh, a great film, uh, a film with perfect casting, perfect direction, great dialogue, great screenplay, great music, and and again we haven't touched on it, but the music I think the music is often by this guy named Carter Burrell throughout his films, like even back to Blood Simple. Um, um, the music really, really ties uh, the, the films together uh, so well. Um, even in, in a film, uh, a bigger film, which um, I think I'll talk about later, which is Miller's Crossing, where it's a lot more kind of uh, orchestral in that. Uh, it's it's sort of one of their, the, the films where they really bring out the music. I think that we have to acknowledge that the music in the film, and this film has that in spades as well. Um, this film brings you into um, a part of America and a time of year in America that we often don't see on film, and that's the dead of winter. Uh, and it's Fargo. So 1996 is uh, Fargo, uh, which is just a, a tremendous film and probably, um, I would argue, the best film that they made in terms of an all-around film. I don't think they got any better, um, not before and not since in terms of what you, you see in a film, what you have in a film. Um, not my top pick, but probably the best film that, that they made. Uh, the, the, again, the performance they got out, the cinematography, just the, the landscape of the, the open, open fields and, and plains of, of that part of America. The, the the accents that they use when you have that uh, was it called the the Midwestern and the you know the the Dakota into Wisconsin accents that you have uh, going on at that time or going on is 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 just incredible and then uh, the the performances from Francis McDormand uh, to William H Macy um, again Steve Buscemi um, what's his name Storm, Peter Stormare who was in the Big Lebowski. Uh, it held together really well and you're transported, you're transported into that place, that time. And you're going through again, a murder, um, um, sort of a, a true crime, uh, film as well. 
it it feels tighter and you were mentioning this about you know how raising arizona felt this film feels so tight it feels so well thought out so well put together it's just a big movie made for a big audience uh, made for academy awards it, it just sort of has it all and, and it, it really came through as well i think i think it was probably uh, probably their best work uh, by far yeah i think when mm-hmm. we have jeff on or when i talk to jeff my brother's yeah. been on the show before uh, one thing that we always talk about movies is world building and, and movies, especially now, they lack this sort of people live here in this world that's being made. With Fargo, I think that is probably the best world or the best setting that, that in, in any movie ever. I think it it's incredible that it invites you into this cold, cold place and you buy everything that it's giving you. I think it's absolutely genius what they do in that movie. And especially through all their movies, the setting is equally as, as much of a character as all of the characters that they put in. It, well it's perfectly casted just what, where you are in that world. In Fargo, the fact that they were able to make that movie and then this TV show had the equal amount of success creating that world as well, uh, that, that movie will stand the test of time. And I think that show also will stand the test of time. And especially mm-hmm. with Francis McDermott, like Francis Murphy is great. McDermott is great. I think she's actually married to Joel Cohen, which is probably why she's yeah, in a lot of these so. movies. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you're right. I, I think that that is some of their best performances that they've ever gotten in one of their movies. So I, I'm fully on board for a good Fargo. Well, and, w- and when you mentioned the the world, um, there's a scene in the film where she meets a, a person that I think she knew, calls her up out of the blue, uh, wants to go, uh, you know, have a drink with her just to kind of reminisce and talk about old times. And it's a classmate from like high school. And the, the scene has nothing to do with the film. Like nothing to do with the story. It's not going to bring it anywhere, but it's an incredible scene. It's incredibly well acted. I I, I can't remember the name of the actor who 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 played the the character, um, or his name at this point uh, of the character. But you know, he starts kind of unloading on her about how his his wife is dying of cancer and it's so hard and 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 that. And it's just like it's a heart heartbreaking scene. And she's kind of taken a aback by it. He even makes a pass at her and she kind of pushes him back around, um, back to his, his uh, place on the other side of the table. And it's just a, a powerful, funny, sad uh, scene that kind of pops in, then goes nowhere. But again, I think what's important is what you're, you're saying is that it's part of that world. It's part of that, that world that they have. You're part of that world. You're at that table next to them or that you're, you're in that town. Like you have that accent, you have that attitude. I mean, it, what other movie where they spend, they have it in the middle of winter where, you know, you got to go out and take the, the ice off your, your windshield. You know, as Canadians, we, we, we know that, but you don't see that stuff in film and movies and they do it because you're in that world. Right. So it, it works. Yeah. well. Mm-hmm. It's equally as much character development for the place that you're in as the characters get in that movie. Yeah. That's a great pick. Yeah. I'll go to my second pick here. I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad you even brought up music. I'm going to go mm-hmm. Miller's crossing for this mm-hmm. one. Miller's mm-hmm. crossing. Yes. Wow. Okay. Uh, first of all, Irish movies, the way Irish people talk to each other. <laughs> Very yep. cool. I think one of the reasons why especially this movie hits pretty close to me and a reason why I like it is because you're the reason that I got into Cohen movies and the father-son relationships that they have in this movie is sort of something that you don't necessarily see mm-hmm. uh, throughout movies. It's a it's depiction that that is very interesting, I suppose. And I think it's one of the quintessential gangster movies of all time. It is the 
it, it's, it's, it's essentially about a guy who's crossed between two gangs and he, he's sort of playing both of them at the same time. But it has the classic Cohen archetypes. Um, I think everybody involved in this movie, it is their best movie. And that includes Steve Buscemi. I think that it's his best performance. It's an absolutely fascinating movie. All of the relationships are so affectionate, uh, but they're all, they have such a, a distance between each other. And, and it's all about this brotherhood and how there's this distance. I said it before, but there's this distance, but they're all so into each other. It's incredible. Um, to me, I think it is the most defining gangster picture of all time. And that includes all of the Scorsese movies. Um, and you brought it up before, but it has an incredible score. And the dialogue, if you go back and rewatch this movie, something else sticks up to you from the dialogue. It's this, it's, you get a new sense of what, what that line was or what that line meant. Um, it's all about these choices and where our moral compass is, or if you're guided by a moral compass, is that moral compass necessarily like twisted? Like what, what are you necessarily following? It's an incredibly philosophical movie and it hits you right from the beginning that it's going to be a very ph- philosophical movie. I think just beyond even what Coen brothers do, the fashion in this movie is very <laughs> for the character. Like it, it's so my down to the minute detail about why people are wearing things, the hats, especially. And I mean, I think the shootout scene is probably my favorite Coen brothers scene in, in any of their movies. Well, and, just that, I mean, and that scene, and um, did you mean um, John Turturro or Steve Buscemi? When you said, uh, uh, I think Steve Buscemi, like John Turturro was uh, the Benny Birnbaum, bar- and and Steve Buscemi is like yeah, a, he became a very minor character. Fame. Yeah, John Turturro, yeah, no, but I think that's Steve. In it. Yeah, um, it's and Albert Finney who plays you know like a, that dad figure to Gabriel Byrne in, in the film. Uh, he's that performance was great by Albert Finney. Just uh, the scene where you know uh, um, Gabriel Byrne tells him that uh, you know he's been you know uh, sleeping with his his. Uh, his girl, his girlfriend, and Albert Finney just sort of, you know, has taken it very calmly, and then quietly walks out the room and just starts speeding him up. And just that, that picture of him or that image of him walking down the hall with all the gangsters lined up on the sides and him rolling up his sleeves, such a, a powerful performance without any words, just using his fists. Um, and then later on, where the the gangster, the rival gang. Um, and, and again, led by, uh, I think his name is John Polito, uh, actor John Polito, often in, in Coen Brothers movies, was in The Big Lebowski, for example. Um, just a great, uh, plays the Italian gangster as opposed to the, to the Irish gangster. Um, you know, they put a hit out on him and they go to his house and, you know, it's the house is sets, gets set on fire and he pulls out the Tommy gun. And it's just an incredible, it's kind of like akin to uh, the Raising Arizona scenes or, or the big, big kind of scenes where you have the chases that you often have in, in, uh, in Coen Brothers movies. It, it was a big scene. And again, the music really, I get, you mentioned the music, the Carter Burrell music. It, it really stuck out more than, than I think in other Coen Brothers movies. Uh, not up until that point, maybe even since. It was just sort of this like, a sweeping sound and more orchestral. And it, it, they kept bringing elements of Danny Boy into it. And at one point it had uh, Italian traditional um, sort of strains into, in, put into the, the soundtrack as well. Um, it worked out uh, really, really well. Um, did you, again, I mentioned John Turturro. He was just just brilliant uh, in this yeah, film. I think as that's well. the movie that, although 
not at all like Barton Fink. I think that's right. the movie that they were like, oh, we should cast this guy as Barton Fink because he he was delivering yeah, such, such yeah. incredible he, he things. Delivered. And uh, uh, the scenes where he, you know, they returned back to the to the woods where he was supposed to kill uh, the John Turturro uh, character. And they have his hat, like yeah, that dream of his hat kind of rolling off. <laughs> it's it's an image in all, all Coen Brothers movies. You mentioned the Toma Weeds. You mentioned you know um, even in Raising Arizona, where they have like the the baby booties going down the road as uh, as it's being driven by the by the um, Randall Tex Cobb on the motorcycle. Um, they're there, and it's just a, a beautiful image of this hat flowing down, like just rolling down and through the through this meadow, the, the this wood. Uh, Again, it brings you back to that kind of sweeping world where you're part of it. You're in those woods. It's a, it's a way of bringing you in that that doesn't exist uh, with other filmmakers. I, I don't think they're they're quite adept at, at doing that. The question I have, and I remember when I watched the film originally, like I, I saw it uh, when it first came out as well. And I don't think I really went back to it too much, but I went back to it recently, and it was much better than I even remember. Um, it was so I, I, I think it's a good pick. Uh, it, it was so strong. And what I find interesting is um, the Gabriel Byrne character, the, the main guy, Tommy, um, he's he's the star and he has so much screen time. And this is not Gabriel Byrne's performance. It's great. It's it's almost like as the film he's not always as important as what's going on. And I'm, I'm trying to make this clear. Um, it's like the, the characters around him have so much going for them and so much going on that he's almost a part of things and trying to make his way that they almost sort of made him smaller in order to have this whole world that he's kind of pulled into. It was really, a, I wish I could put it better, but it was a great way of doing it. And, and you can only get a performance from an actor to do that without kind of wanting to take all the screen time, which he does and has, but he, he does it so well, yet still remaining kind of uh, subtle and in the background. It reminded me of a lot of um, the performance uh, by the, the, the male lead in um, Raising Arizona as well, where you have these characters that are really independent, really strong willed, very honest like in both films, when you ask them a question, they're going to ask you, like, are you messing around with my wife? Are you messing around with my girlfriend? Yes. You know, are you ripping me off? Yes, I am. Like they're, they're honest to, uh, you know, a fault because it, it does get them in trouble. But um, that's their character is that, you know, I'm going to tell it like it is. And you really appreciate about that about them. At the same time, they have this independence and free spiritness. They're still tied to... Um, you know, making these terrible decisions or making the wrong decisions. There's something that's always kind of pulled them in, in a different direction. It gets them in trouble. It gets, you know, the, the main guy in Blood Symbol uh, murdered. And, and you know, it, it sort of has Gabriel Byrne just, you know, not be part of any gang at the, at the end of the, that film. So it's it's interesting how they kind of develop those characters too, that to see, yes, they're independent. Yes, they're, they're, they have all the spirit, but at the same time, um, you know, the, you, you, you do feel for their, their weaknesses and their insecurities, right? Which is constantly, point out, constantly pointed out by both the females in Blood Simple and, uh, and uh, uh, Miller's Crossing as well. So it's, it's a great choice. It's a, it's a great film. It's a, it's a wonderful watch. And again, it's beautiful. It's uh, beautiful to watch. It really, I think sometimes when you watch movies, I think it came out in 1990. When you watch movies from the 90s and they're trying to do that 1920s, 30s look, still looks like the 90s and that, they really... It, it doesn't even hold uh, that way. Like it really looks, I wouldn't say authentic, but it has just a world of its own. And the dialogue, the dialogue, as you were, you mentioned it, I was thinking about it. 
Um, it's Cohen-esque, but not Cohen-esque. They really went back to that time, that that quick, you know, back and forth of the, the language that they would use, uh, the way you speak, the cadence and that that they would have in films from those to- those times. Um, but not as Cohen-esque as you would think. They really kind of went back to that sort of genre of film um, that worked out really well, which uh, I'm only thinking about that now, but that, that kind of uh, struck me as well. Yeah. Good choice. Why don't you give me... Give me your give me your last pick here. Okay. This is again. I said it got murky before, but it really gets murky um, now. Because <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. They're, they're, they made great films. They made True Grit. They made No Country for Old Men. And I don't know if we have time or if we want to do this, but I would argue that those are, in a way, not part of this Cohen esque film. And I, yeah. I have a, I have a reason why. <laughs> Um, so I, I was torn between uh, a couple of films, uh, but okay, I'll just say it. It's Blood Simple. I would think number four, 1984, their, their first film. Um, again, as I said earlier, all the elements are there. It has the, uh, the music by Carter Burrell, which at one point or at some points in the film, when we talk about raw filmmaking or new uh, filmmaking, even with the score, I think there was like a synth involved. It was sort of like trying to get the build up the the tension, and I was like, uh, I was thinking, oh, maybe they just don't have the money at this point to make to put all, all the money into the into the music for the film. And then it kind of went away, and it went back to a, a really nice, me- very memorable score uh, by Carter Burrell. Um, the performances again that they get out of Dan Hedaya and M.M. and Walsh, not uh, like as a supporting uh, cast, um, you know, two kind of very evil guys are just incredible. Uh, Dan Hedaya is an actor who was like, I think at that point was on Cheers as like uh, the quirky husband to uh, Carla on Cheers. So he's a comedic actor that you would think just incredible in this film. And M.M. Walsh as this uh, private investigator who turns out to be a pretty evil guy. Um, incredible. Uh, so that just the, there, those are two standout uh, performances there. Um, it's a small, it feels like a small film. Um, it feels like there wasn't a lot of money, obviously, um, but it it has all those elements of Coen Brothers films. Great performance by Francis McDormand. Um, and again, it's the first where they bring you into that world. And in this case, it's this this world of this little bar that they, they work out of and go to. And you're drawn into it. You're part of that. This, this is, um, aside from the, the, the reviews, or aside from the, the draft, and I wanted to know your thoughts on this, Michael. There's something about Coen Brothers movies and a lot of the films that we talked about where the main... And I know movies have to have a point. They have to have decisions being made, and as a result, you have, you know, this story goes forward. But in their films, there's always people on the sides and in the background, minor characters or people just walking by, Whereas you're watching the film, you're like, man, if you were just like that guy, you wouldn't be in all this trouble. You'd just be going about your life, enjoying it, doing what you do. There's always that sense that they could have made, if they made another decision, they'd be that guy walking down the street and they literally have those people walking by or going through. And it happens a lot in their films, right? Where people are just like either hearing their stories or part of their stories. And you're thinking, wow, that guy is just totally fine because he's not going to get pulled into the traps that, that we see laid out for the other characters in films. It was just a, an aside, not a very uh, well thought out uh, idea about those films, but just seeing those, uh, those minor characters and be like, no, I think that's could have totally been safe. intentional. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, that, I I totally think that's agree. completely intentional. And, it, and again, it, it gives you that uneasiness, right. You know, that, uh, that they do so well. So I think 1984 is uh, blood simple. Um, 
yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously not not a strong, strong film, but the the elements are there, and uh, it's a great film to watch. It's a great film to to sort of experience, not just to kind of have it as a gateway to Coen Brothers movies, but but just to enjoy it as a film. Works well. Yeah, it's one of those movies that it immediately grabs you. Yeah, you you're pulled into it. You immediately want to watch it, and I I, I agree with you. I don't necessarily think it's one of their they're like, oh, this is if you got to start with the Coen Brothers movie, you start with Blood Simple. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. think with that, but I think like if you're a director and that's a movie you made, then that would be a high point of one of your filmography. And for the Coen Brothers, I think it goes under the radar for a lot of people because they have so many other movies. Right. But Blood right. Simple. Yeah. No, I, I I totally agree with you. All right. What are I you don't on? really have much to say on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also agree with you, even for my third pick, I'm torn between a bunch of different movies. I really like uh, Burn After Reading is a choice that I'm thinking. Uh, I know there wasn't a lot of people who are big fans of Hail Caesar, but for me, Hail Caesar was, I, I really enjoyed that movie. It was a quick movie. It was one of the first movies I saw when I was living alone uh, mm-hmm. for the first time by myself in theaters. Uh, I also recently watched A Serious Man. That movie's just damn funny it's devastating and every time you watch it because i watched it a couple times but even on repeat viewing you you want to get to the end of that movie because it's so emotionally engaging that you you got to be devastated by the end of it and the end is absolutely devastating mm-hmm. it's also about the spirituality and lack of spirituality but it's not the movie that i'm going to go with the movie that i'm going to go with for my last pick is no country for old men yeah. i think this movie takes all of the aspects of how they create settings as its own character and they add it to the villain of this movie, which for me, I think this is one of their best characters, but I do not, not the best, but I do think it's their best villain that they've ever made. And I think it's a top 10 villain of all time throughout movies. Uh, Javier Bardem is absolutely horrifying. (laughs) Plus the setting involved in Javier Bardem, uh, it adds to this intensity, this anxiety that you feel in every scene that you're in. You're always thinking that this dude with the, a lockpick gun or whatever, the strangest haircut is going to pop up. He's going to be there. He's going to scare you. Uh, so No Country for, for Old Men, for me, I think I'm going to go with just because one of the most iconic characters. Uh, it, it did great for award season. It will be remembered as one of the Coen brothers, I think top five, top 10 movies that they, they've ever made. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to go with no country for old men. what do you think of no country for old men? Oh no, no, I agree. I was thinking about it today actually. And um, I think it was like what, 2006 it came out or 2008, somewhere in there. And I was like, that's 15, 16 years ago. It's the kind of film you watch and you're not going to be, you know, it could be yesterday. It could be like, it's, it doesn't, age in that way because you're just again in that world um and it's almost meditative the whole uh, start of the film where he's hunting and then he stumbles on this terrible crime scene and he's just like there's not a word right there's not a word not too much dialogue maybe he's grunting a few times because that's what he seems to do a lot in that film uh josh brolin and uh, as he's going through it's just uh, it becomes this real meditation on life and uh, the world and the evil in it and how, like you said about the Javier Bardem character, where you don't even know where this evil is going to pop up. And it's not even for any reason. Like there's no sort of, uh, it's not because of revenge or it's not because of this. It just kind of exists. Like that that, that, that terror that I think the the uh, Tom Lee Jones character has as he gets older and is looking to his retirement and that, and is just looking at the world going like, like, how do we, how do you fight against that? How do you, you know, how do you be, one of the good guys and want to uh, 
to fight, you know, to get on your horse and go off and, and fight the guy in the, in the black hat when, when the evil is just kind of that insipid. Um, so I, I agree. It's a powerful film. My argument, and I think I have this argument for True Grit and um, No Country for, for Old Men, is that they're very, as much as they are Coen Brothers movies, they are not in that they're really true. And I heard this only, I haven't read the True Grit uh, novel, but they they said that they were very true to that novel. And you can see that in the dialogue in True Grit. And you can see it in the dialogue in the story in No Country for Old Men, which is based on a Cormac McCarthy book, which is like, I read that book. I highly recommend Cormac McCarthy as a writer. Brilliant, brilliant writer. And it's it's fairly true to that story. And it's straightforward. Both True Grit and this film are straightforward filmmaking with the with what they have on hand, they're not really bringing that Conan. They are bringing the Conan thing because they can, because they are who they are. Um, but it's it's just straightforward to this is the story, this is what we want to tell, and it unfolds that way. And it shows how good they are as filmmakers. That it's not only just their own quirkiness, their own way of wanting to do things. They could take uh, a script and a story, you know, or take a story and adapt it the way they will, and still be very honest with it and make a wonderful film. Um, and it's not necessarily just every their their uh, you know fingerprints on all of it. So it it really uh, holds up well. What I particularly like is that you go through this whole film, and you know he's having your items flipping the coin. It's like you know you decide this coin came from all the way over here, so you're going to meet your fate. You know if it's heads you die, if it's tails you live, whatever you call it, kind of thing. And you go through that and you have that sense of fate that is like foreboding throughout the whole film. Like all these decisions they make, it's all a matter of fate. And then you get to the final scene. Um, I can't remember her name. The the Scottish actress, um, and you know, it's she get to the scene where she, he's flipping the coin for her. He says, "You know, you got to call it." And she's like, "No." And he's like, "Well, you got to call it. Okay. This this coin came all the way here. You got to call." It. And you can tell his face is like, "Wait, no one's ever questioned me on this." And he's like, "No, the the coin isn't telling me my fate. You're deciding my fate." You're either going to kill me or you're not. It's not up to the coin. What does the coin have to do with anything? And all of a sudden, this whole kind of mystique of a fate in the whole film is like, yeah, like that doesn't make any sense. It's just one guy who's crazy who's going to kill you or not. <laughs> like, and it, it worked so well at kind of taking that uh, veneer off of, of that that sort of you know uh, different world, different uh, sense of a story. I really enjoyed that part. Yeah, I I, I agree with you that I I don't think it's uh, necessarily a, a Coen Brothers movie, and that uh, <laughs> same with True Grit. They don't fit this. This this is the type of movie that they make. I I like those movies though because I think it it shows that they can showcase this other sort of movie. These these book adaptations in the frameworks of their yeah. own weird zany goofiness. And this movie, as much as the dialogue is so good in all of their other movies, it lives in the absence of no lines or the quietness that the Exactly. The tenseness that it brings, the anxiety that it's trying to induce, because you still get that anxiousness that you get from all of their other movies, but it lives in such a different way yep. in No Country for Old Men that, for me, that one stands above all, a lot of the, their other works, uh, mainly because it does showcase that they have a different type of movie that they're able to create. Yeah, and, uh, and again, creating that world in that sense and being true to, you know, it's not always easy being true to novels. And and, and I think they did uh, they did with that. It's a beautiful film. It's a beautiful film to watch. Yeah, it's it, uh, it's uh, even just sort of going up staircases, you know, similar to what we're saying about so many of the Coen Brothers movies. They can 
they can take little areas and little spots uh, of, uh, you know, a diner or a hotel room. Uh, and it's all, all great to watch and to see. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we jump into a bit about the Cohen Brothers thing? Sure. So one thing that I particularly really enjoy about these these movies is they can see something in actors that I think a lot of other directors can't. They somehow find like the perfect casting for all of these roles um, and they let the actor sort of do what they're going to do. They're obviously directed and, and the script helps them a lot. But if you just read a lot of these, like you were saying before, that performance doesn't necessarily jump off the page for you. And I think especially when it comes to someone like John Goodman, who in his own life is incredibly soft-spoken. He's, mm-hmm. he's not a very loud person. He's very um, sort of like a mellow guy. And to cast him as somebody like Walter, <laughs> I don't think a lot of directors would be able to do that or to see the potential that those actors have. What, what do you think it is about the Coen brothers that really can get the the most i think out of a lot of the actors like a couple of these movies i'm saying are these actors best performances and i think a lot of the performances and the characters that they created in combination with the actor are like some of the most outstanding work that you can see in movies ever made what do you think it is about the coen brothers that they're able to get that out of the out of the actors or what are your overall thoughts on the performances that you see in coen brothers movies I, I think I can only comment on the latter. My thoughts on on the performances, because uh, to be honest, I have no idea. Like I, you know, you're making me reflect on on those lines on a page. How do they get that to come to life? And I don't know if it's the, you know, it's it's obviously the Coen Brothers, but it's, you know, and I don't know who casts their films, but how do they they choose these actors to get these performances from them? Even like a young younger Nicolas Cage turning in the that performance in, in Raising Arizona, not being afraid to kind of be out there like that is something. Um, John Goodman, you know, you mentioned Barton Fink. John Goodman, Burn Fink was incredible. Like uh, it just, and that was like in 19, what, uh, 91 or something, you know, he's still in the midst of doing uh, Roseanne. Like it's, it's just a, uh, an, an incredible performance of, and just to sort of see him sort of switch between, you know, that, that evilness that kind of came in and just uh, as Barton sort of go on about Barton Fink, but uh, you know, you remember the scenes where he's trying to tell Barton Fink about his life and what he's doing and Barton Fink just not listening to him, keeps interrupting him to tell him about how he's for the common man and how he appreciates him. And at the end, when John Goodman finally loses it, it's because you never listen, you know, and the way he delivers that line is just, is just great. So those performances do come out. And, and I think you're right from, from actors that you don't expect them always to come to to come out that way right or steve buscemi in in uh in um fargo is another one the two jeff bridges movies right you, you mentioned big lebowski but also true grit like holy smoke um how do they do it uh, how do they get consistent performances like that right you know uh george clooney and no brother where art thou right it's uh it's incredible. Even in Burn After Reading, I think Even George Clooney, like, and just it, and going against his best type. comedic performance. Yeah, exactly. And going against what you sort of see, you kind of have a, you know, if you're Jack Nicholson, you're always Jack Nicholson. But he's able to get these these performances. They're able rather to get these performances from them. Um, you know, Holly Hunter uh, in in Raising Arizona, Frances McDormand. I mean, just an incredible actress and. 
they're actors and and Josh Brolin, like No Country for Old Men. Uh, it's it, they all keep kind of coming to mind, and and they 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 do pull them out. How? Why? I don't know. I'm not a writer, yeah. director, filmmaker. I just <laughs> I enjoy watching them and I, I enjoy seeing them. And again, it goes to that trust, right? Like, and this is sort of began with with Blood Simple. I saw Blood Simple, knew they had something, knew the formula worked. I wanted to see more Coen Brothers movies. And I'm very rarely uh, let down by them. That being said, uh, I have another uh, point to raise if I can. I've, I realize, uh, you know, in preparing for this, I've seen a lot of Coen Brothers movies. Um, I saw Hail Caesar, Lady Killers, Intolerable Cruelty, Inside Llewellyn Davis, uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I think it's called, uh, Hudsucker Proxy. Uh, and... Um, um, the Man Who Wasn't There. I think that's uh, the title of the film. A Serious Man. Um, there, And I started to compartmentalize them into movies I can't remember. <laughs> like like Coen Brothers movies that really just did not resonate or hit me, me at all. Like Hail Caesar. I really don't have too many memories of it. Lady Killers, none. You know, and that starred like uh, Tom Hanks. Um Intolerable Cruelty was George Clooney and Catherine Zeta-Jones. I remember seeing it and I remember not feeling uncomfortable with it. There's a certain meanness to it. There's always a meanness to Coen Brothers movies that are tempered with, you know, the not a positive, but a, a good story, a depth, an understanding that life isn't always so nice and, and clean. Um but they always temper it that way. And I find some of these movies, and for some reason, and I can't remember too much about intolerable, intolerable cruelty as well, but I can't remember too much about it. But I do remember as a sense of it was just kind of mean and, and it didn't really sit with me at all. And, and surprisingly, um, a later film, Inside the Well and Davis, um, again, enjoyed the film, has all the elements there, beautiful to watch, great acting, but there's just sort of an underlying unease to it um, that I, I just didn't I didn't connect with uh, watching it, and that's not something that I, I think I did return to that movie actually to try and see if I, I, I changed. Um, it did a little bit, but uh, not that comfortable with it. And even a ballad of uh, Buster Scruggs, uh, same thing. Those little vignettes, there was just something disturbing about each of them, which I think was the point. <laughs> which is which I think was the point of what they were trying to do is not it's not they're not always going to be you know have these edges to it and and kudos to them for doing it it just doesn't doesn't kind of sit with as well with me when I watch these films and that one I gave a couple of, of watches to see uh, how I would get through. What do you think it is about the Coen Brothers, especially in that run of those movies that that you don't necessarily find great? And mm -hmm. I, I do actually kind of agree with you. I think for for whatever reason the flavor or something was lost on it. It, it kept all of the same elements. It still, I think, worked for what they were trying to do with those movies. But even in award shows, they started just dropping off. They were never really nominated. Where before in the Coen Brothers movie, it was always you'd have mm -hmm. something at the Oscars that was that was put up there. And and now, especially you don't really see it. Obviously, they broke up, so they're not going to be making movies necessarily together for a while, I suppose, for in the past decade. Um, but what do you think it is that that happened? Do you think it's that meanness or, or why are you not necessarily attracted to newer movies that they're putting out? Well, I think it's like anything else. I mean, I'm not 20. Um, you know, you, you, you have your own life experience. You, you kind of grow and you, you see things differently. Perhaps it's that. Um, it, you know, and I think I would like you mentioned the film um, 
uh, a serious man. And I think that's probably a film, you know, my age and, and time where, you know, you kind of connect to a film like that. You connect to a guy who's like sort of, you know, from what I remember of it, like you, you connect to a film where a guy who's just trying to find his way and his life is sort of falling apart and his, his marriage is falling apart. And um, he, he, you know, he's not, he's not going to get tenure at the university kind of thing. Um, you, you kind of get to that point where is this what it's all about? And it's similar to another film that they made at the time with uh, Billy Bob Thornton uh, called The Man Who Wasn't There, where they really kind of go head on into what's it all about? Why am I here? What's this going on? And I don't know if you've seen this one. Uh, I only saw it once many, many years ago. Again, not something that really held in my mind, but similar to A Serious Man where it, and it's a brilliant setup. And it, this is the most memorable thing for me because it, it it's, it's sort of just in this line, which is maybe why they made the movie, kind of sums up uh, a lot of life. And so Billy Bob Thornton plays a barber and he's cutting hair. And all of a sudden he stops cutting the guy's hair and he's like, it just grows back. <laughs> so his whole life is like, I'm doing this, but is this it? Like, it's just going to come back. Like, it's just, what is, and then he goes off on this, you know, typical Cohen-esque sort of journey where he starts blackmailing people. He starts trying to change his life by Scarlett Johansson, a very young Scarlett Johansson's in it. Um, you know, he sees her as this piano prodigy and he wants to maybe go down that road to make her famous as a pianist, but she's not as talented as, as she thinks he, as he thinks she is. And it, it just goes down this journey of him just sort of not wanting to do what he's doing anymore. So to go back to your question, I think it's that. I think it's it's sort of they themselves kind of, you know, with intolerable cruelty, was about, which is about a nasty divorce or or these films like A Serious Man, The Man Who Wasn't There, are they themselves kind of coming to terms with, you know, who they are? I think what, you know, the youngest one is probably about 10 years older than I am. Um, where are they in life and what have they kind of all done with it? So when you look back on it, do they do they resonate because you're just so used to the Cohen-esque part of the, the movies or do they not resonate like, you know, Jake does with Wes Anderson or do you, do you, does it not just sort of resonate because where you are, you, where you, you are in your life? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there's a movie that can kind of come out now. Like I wanted to go see the, the runaway dolls one drive away. Dolls, drive, yeah. yeah. But then you told me what the content was and I'm not as comfortable seeing it, but you know, it, maybe there is a, like, you know, I, I understood the point about Wes Anderson, but I thought Wes Anderson, like Asteroid City, I thought that was a great movie. I thought, like, I bought right into it. Like, I didn't, I wasn't worried about the two Anderson-esque uh, qualities of it. I thought it was a great film. So, yeah, could change. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't necessarily think it's tiresome. It, same with Wes Anderson. I don't know if we've hit the, the point where, okay, this is a bit too much. I agree with you. I think it's more just where you are in life. But for me, especially someone who's trying to, you know, or not trying to, who's doing this, who's talking about movies and making podcasts and things, or trying to cr be critical of movies and think about movies and understand them. Going Brothers were actually pretty interesting to go back to and sort of see, oh, yada, yada, this was good, this worked for me. Or, but, but a lot of it was also just nostalgia of having seen those movies at such a young age and then like, oh, why did I like this then? And oh, now I can uh, get more out of it now. I think maybe those movies will be the same where I'll go back to a, a movie one of the ones that you're talking about and be like, oh, now I like this or I'm enjoying it for a different aspect. So I agree with you. I think it's probably just where people are in life and for them too. I think the movies are especially personal to them. So probably where they are too is one of those aspects. Yeah. I mean, so we've hit an hour here. Sorry. sorry. Go on. Go on. 
Go uh, on. Go no, on. and I appreciate what you said uh, as well. I really see their films as art. I really see it as, and I see movies as art. Um, you know, not not all movies are art, to be honest, but I see their films as art. Um, you know, you, people could argue that all movies are art, but no, um, some movies are just movies. I, I really see their 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 films as. Um, an art that's to be watched, that's to be taken in, that's to be analyzed, that's to be seen. And that's why I, I even felt with you guys, um, you know, uh, at a young age that, uh, that, that you should be exposed to that because it, it's, it's, uh, it's art. It's like going to a museum. It's like, uh, you know, um, taking this in, going to see Picasso's, going to see uh, Van Gogh's. Uh, if you get a great film, uh, it, it has to be shared. So, uh, and they, they, I think they really delivered at times uh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So we've hit an hour here, so we'll probably break it here. But why don't you tell me if you had any final thoughts or any questions or something you want to say about the Cohen brothers, anything you want to talk about? Now's the time. Yeah, Drop just a, a, we kept talking about those uh, in every Cohen brother. And we could try and figure it out, but in every Cohen brother movie, whether it's True Grit, where you're on a open on a horse on an open road, there's always something about roads and taking that camera down the road or something rolling down the road, whether it's the hats or the tumbleweeds or the kids' shoes, um, just going down the roads. It remind me, you know, the band Cake. Remember, that was the other thing you guys grew up listening to, the band Cake. Um, all Cake songs at one point, they always have cars in them, right? So, like, it's the, the going down that road, following those white lines is going to be in every Coen Brothers movies uh, as well. So that's just sort of one of the things that if I have an image of a Coen Brothers movie, it's, it's being taken down, uh, down that road and, and you're on a trip with them and, and you're happy to be on the ride with them. I really appreciate their films. Yeah, me too. All right. Thanks for joining me, dad. Thank uh, you, Michael. I, obviously you don't have a letterbox, so I'm not going to shout out your letterbox here. Uh, but if there's a movie you want to recommend or if there's something you want to say, Say oh, it now. Any, uh, any movies do, uh, you've seen lately or something you want to recommend? Well, you were talking about your Oscar picks, and there was a film, I think, cinematography. Uh, I don't know if you saw the film on uh, Netflix. It's El Conde. It's a Chilean movie, uh, The Count in, in English. Um, and it's about uh, Augusto Pinochet, who's a former uh, dictator um, of uh, Chile, uh, who in this film is actually a vampire. It's, uh, it's quite an astounding film. Uh, it's it's not a, a, an easy watch, but a beautiful beautiful film uh, to see. Um, uh, this this uh, this nice South American film uh, that that you can watch. Uh, I highly recommend that one. And and if you watch it, I think you'll see why it was nominated for uh, cinematography. That's it. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Dad. Uh, if you guys are listening to this, we're going to jump to our second review of Driveaway Dolls on our rewatch with Anthony Carney, and he's also going to give us his top five Coen Brothers movies. Thank you guys for joining us for the draft, but we're also going to change some gears here to a single Coen, not the brothers duo, not the combination, but just Ethan Coen for his new movie, Drive Away Dolls. Yes, we already talked about this one on Friday, but but we also wanted to get some other people's opinions. And I also saw it again over the weekend, which was something we were talking about also on Friday, that maybe it was a movie that you had to see twice to completely understand. But of course we had to bring somebody in for this. So Anthony Carney, your boy Anthony on Letterboxd is back again to talk to us about his experience with Drive Away Dolls. How are you doing today, Anthony? I'm doing great. How are you doing today, Michael? I am doing fantastic. So, 
when did you see this movie? It's we're recording this on a Monday. I saw this movie on Sunday night, so like twenty hours ago or so. Okay, so it's fresh in your mind. Very How was much. the theater? Was it packed? Was it was it empty? Uh, it was me and one other person. <laughs> I was. What is this? What is that going on? And he was way in the back. It was great. <laughs> Okay, okay. I also saw this movie by myself, but there was a lot of other people there. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe other people's theaters aren't as popular as, as mine. I guess I'm pretty deep in downtown Toronto, but whatever. <laughs> whatever, whatever. Let's get your opinions on this movie. Uh, we already gave a synopsis on the last episode, so you can just jump right in with your review here. I'm very curious what you thought of this movie. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> it's It's not bad. Like, it's just... It feels like there's three or four different movies stuffed in here, and they don't really ever fully mesh together the way I want them to. And, like, each of them are pretty good on their own, but they're dragged down by each other, I think. Like, you can feel parts that feel Coen's-y, and you can feel parts that feel distinctly un-Coen's-y. And I don't think that the, the borders between the two of those have been smoothed over, really. Yeah, that's a, that was one of the things that I thought. It felt like half of a Cohen movie, and then I believe his wife was Trisha Cook. Yeah, it felt like maybe it was more of her project framed through the eyes of a, a Cohen sort of experience. Uh, but I mean, like, is for I guess did you like the movie? Yeah, yeah, I liked it. Like, I can't see myself ever watching it again. Okay, that's not right. If like if I'm at somebody's house and it's two in the morning and they're like, hey, do you want to watch Driveway Dolls? I won't say no, but I'm not going to consciously choose to put it on again. You know, and I think that's fair. I think especially with this podcast is one thing that I've noticed is like I'll watch a movie and then, oh, I want to talk about that movie or like give it a critical opinion or something. But this movie is essentially like it. There's it's non-consequential. There's there's nothing really about it. And I think that's what the movie is also just telling you that it's doing there's there's no greater experience beyond the 80 minute runtime that it has totally and i think that if they had uh i know you and jake talked about this briefly i think that if they had another 15 or 20 added onto it it could have been something special but like and i love i i love short movies i'm very much a short movie guy like it felt so rushed with the amount of stuff that goes on in it yeah, and it, it felt like it was missing a lot of exploration. So I, mm-hmm. I guess I'll talk about my second experience here too with it. I, I missed a lot of the, the greater themes of this movie, which I think is a lot about like, it, it's essentially two women who want to have control of their, their sex lives. They want, they want to have sex with everything. doesn't matter a woman or man. It's not necessarily like a lesbian movie as much as I thought it was, but they want to have sex completely on their own terms. And I did not get that through the first watch. And I don't think that's a fault of the movie more the fact that I don't like sex in movies. So I was yeah. kind of turned off by that a lot. Uh, See, but I love I, you know, that was a movies. pretty powerful thing. <laughs> so like we, well, we really came at this from opposite angles and sort of reached the same conclusion. Yeah, I think we came up about this in the middle. One thing I was lacking in the movie that I, now that I knew more of it going into it was the relationship between the two of them. It's this sort of opposite opposites attract attract thing and that oh this buddy movie could eventually turn into a romance which of course it does by the end and they go get 
married maybe at the end of it. I don't know if that's a throwaway joke or the actual plot of what they were trying to do. But on a rewatch, I also didn't get that from the beginning, even though I knew that that was going to happen. I didn't feel that chemistry between the two characters. And it's not to say that the two performances, again, were very bad. I actually thought they handled the language uh, perfect. I thought I thought they did an excellent job with the way that, that Cohen's right. Like the language that they use is so, I don't know, like vaudeville almost. Like it, it's a strange... Mm-hmm. Uh, like amalgamation of this Gen Z person and then this old sort of movie buff people that we really like. Um, but again, it's too Gen Z to have Margaret Qualey as that character. It still completely takes me out of it. I don't know how you feel about that. I don't know if you're as invested in celebrity culture as I am. I have no idea anything about Margaret Qualey. I know that she's in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as like the eighth lead in it. That's all I know her from. Uh, I thought she was awesome in this movie. I had a blast with her. Like, I, I thought that she brings, like, sure, the accent that she does is overtly very bad. But, like, I think yeah. that with how Devil May Care her character is, like, the whole way through, I think that kind of added to it for me. Like, in... If I can circle back to you on... If I can bring this in with what you were saying about the dialogue... Uh, I think the dialogue works really well, and I think Quayley works really well, but I think that they work really well on different planes, where the dialogue almost isn't snappy enough for like the kind of energy that she has, and then yeah. the kind of energy that your two leads bring is too manic for like the very mannered dialogue that you get out of a lot of like, especially the two henchmen when they're bumbling around. Like it, it I think that the actors try to feel like people, whereas the script has them written like characters. Do you know that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I think Margaret Qualley was almost battling that where she kind of thought she was working with the script and as a different character, but she was adding again, three almost different characters into one sort of performance that kind of, I, I, I said falls flat earlier, but I don't think it does fall flat because I do think whatever she's doing, you're some, for some reason buying into it even though it's it's like this, it's super messy of a performance, I guess. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Gerald, Geraldine Viswanathan? I had never seen her in anything before. I think that, uh, what, what what has she been in? Do you know? Well, a movie I've recommended to you, Emo the Musical, an Australian <laughs> musical. <laughs> Have you recommended that to me? Yeah, is it's that an Australian real? musical. <laughs> it is. Okay, it's an Australian okay, musical. Romeo and Juliet sort of style about a goth guy or an emo as they're called there and a Christian girl. And she plays one of the Christian girls uh, in this musical. And it's sort of a battle of the band, Romeo, Juliet. Uh, One of the funniest movies I've ever seen. I don't think it was. I actually don't know what the movie is supposed to be. I'll I'll get you to watch that one because that one is an all timer for me. Just that sounds like the worst thing that's ever been made. Yeah, it it could be one of the worst movies. I might, I almost threw up watching the movie, not because anything gross happens, but because the cast. Listen, I know people don't like me saying this or whatever. Very ugly, very very <laughs> ugly to look at. Painful, painful experience to sit through that movie. But I've seen it like uh, maybe five times at this point. It is one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen. Uh, other than that, she's been in a couple of other different projects. Uh, she's cast in the new Marvel film. I don't remember which one, but she took over Iowa Debris' role. So I hope this is a stepping stone for her because, oh, she was in uh, Blockers with John Cena about the, the parents who don't want their kids to have sex at prom. 
and she was in another movie which i think is just now being referred to as the like the what's that purple emoji that's supposed to be a penis oh eggplant eggplant it's just the eggplant emoji i think it actually an actual that's name but it's about it's, ab- <laughs> it's about these kids who go to the forest or they go on like a camping trip and one guy cuts off his dick by accident and they're what? trying to get him back to the hospital <laughs> also actually a pretty real. good movie that's a fake movie that doesn't exist <laughs> I, I, I would recommend that movie. I think it's on Netflix. It's pretty good. It's with the the guy who cuts his dick off. I think it's the dude from Stranger Things, the stoner guy. Pretty pretty a good movie, that one. So maybe, hey, if these are flying <laughs> under your radar, then, then I hope this movie might pick up some steam for her. But again, I don't think a lot of people are going to see it or even have seen it compared to your experience where only two people are in the theater and you were one of them. Uh, but anyway, what did you actually think of her performance? Uh, so I think that she, her character is very reserved at the start and i think that she's kind of underserved by that like i wish that she was given more chance to be she has she conveys the energy of being uh sort of a very cutting buzz kill well but i don't think that they give her enough opportunities in the first like half to really lean into that as much as i wanted to i thought that she like she seems super talented i i felt that her character was underserved i guess yeah i, I completely agree it's like Again, it's a movie where I love a short runtime. I thought they fit a ton of it, a ton of uh, stuff into the movie, but it could have really used some more exploration, especially with the characters, because there was not a lot of character development. And for a movie that is about two characters becoming, I guess, who they are by the end of the movie, it's all about the adventure and then who they are at the end. You're kind of confused because it feels like you're missing a lot of parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The cameos that came up in this one, Matt Damon... Especially, he's a big guy. He's been popping up in a lot of movies just as some dude in movies. I really liked his performance in this. And on a second watch, very funny. There were more people, again, who were laughing. laughing. They really liked him as this role. Did you like him or did Pedro Pascal even pop out for you? Who were who some standout performers for you? Pedro Pascal was on screen for such a brief period of time that I thought, is that is that paid? And then he was dead for the rest of the movie. So that, I, I mean... I guess if that's the, the uh, experience that they were going for, then they were very successful. Uh, Matt Damon, I didn't know that he was in this until I saw his face pop up on the billboard in the movie, which was great. Me too. Like, I love. Me too. I thought that he was, uh, again, sort of like uh, the last actress that we were speaking about whose name has already exited my mind. Geraldine Viswanathan uh, or Margaret Quayle? That's Quayley. the one. Geraldine. Uh <laughs> He like he's funny and he's doing a character that he can do really well. And it's just I wish he got more to do with it. Like it feels like I wish that they'd stuck with either the criminals following them or with the political angle and leaned into one of those or the other one yeah. of those. And I was similarly disappointed by the like, political I wish part. That, like it feels like they could have either done it feels like there could be like real spite in the political part that sort of goes uh, unaddressed that like obviously gay rights in the 90s is a, a major issue that you can really lean into and they don't really do anything with it past just like sick dunks on this guy who's got a weird penis. A great yeah. penis, I guess. I guess they said that he has the best penis, so that is... Yeah, he has. He does have he that He might have the best though. penis in the world, apparently. <laughs> Which is pretty good. But yeah, yeah, it's another thing that I thought was missing. Like, it, it was such a... They were going for, like, a political thing, which 
for Cohen movies, I don't know for you, but for me, like they're never really political. And this sort of seemed like, oh, maybe this is an interesting angle that they could explore and that they were going to. And again, it felt like maybe things were left on the cutting floor or there just wasn't this exploration of this really interesting time period, especially with gay rights going on in the 90s. And again, I was really interested to see like this framework of a pre-MAGA sort of right wing, left wing, this this interesting culture. And we that just never got explored. Totally. And like I read I read um, a long interview with Ethan and Trisha ahead of the time. I'm on a first name basis with them. We're besties. Uh, that talked about the process making the movie and uh, Trisha cooked talked for a long time about how it was reflecting her experience going to lesbian bows a lot in like the eighties and nineties before lesbian bows totally dropped off. Like she talked about how uh, at that time there were a few hundred lesbian bows across the United States. Now there's like a couple dozen and what they show in the bows, like it does have a distinct characteristic that you see separate from like gay bows in male centric homosexual movies, not to put it too clinically, but like I, it feels like, again, they just don't have enough time with it. And that like, it, it feels like they had so many things on their mind and if they had whittled it down, I think it could have been a lot stronger. I feel like I should say some positive things because I did like the movie. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, we can go right into the positive things. I think when it comes to like the negative parts of the movie, it's like it's missing some stuff. It's very messy. Uh, it feels like half a Cohen movie. It feels like I, I agree with you almost like three different movies in one movie. I wish they focused on one thing. Um, and even in my second watch, I felt the exact same way. I, I did say I thought this might be a cult classic in the future. I don't think it actually is going to be. I think it's just going to be, oh, Sort of like what you said. Oh, someone you're at someone's house. Hey, they're put on driveaway dolls. Yeah, I'll watch this movie. Why don't we get in the positives? What What did you like about this movie? Uh, I always like when a movie starts with a dude being stabbed in the head. I think that's good. I think more movies should start like that. Um, I like how, and again, this is something we did more. But I like how mean and nasty it gets sometimes. Like. Um, when they're at the co-rental place with the guy there, Chucky, is that his name? Who? Oh, uh, oh, what is his name? Chizo? Chizo. Uh, <laughs> I think it's Chizo. I'll, I'll, when I'll they're find. at Chizo's co-place. <laughs> and uh, in, t- in terms of like super minor characters, that guy's on screen for like two minutes. Kills it. Curly. Loved him. Curly. <laughs> he Curly. He was delivering in spades. I loved him. But the, the scene where he gets like the stuffing beaten out of him is like really nasty in like a a really effective way, I think. And then the subsequent scene where uh, the police officer from Booksmote is going to try and check up on the crime scene and you see him throw up the papers in a way that they, she just avoids seeing them is like, uh, I found that like a really effective, heartbreaking, but also funny scene. Like, when it combines uh, sort of the visual nastiness with like whimsical humor, I think it really lands on that. Yeah. And it, it did that a lot throughout the movie. This movie is, it's very funny. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's a, a hilarious movie. It has a lot of laughs built into it. And I think that's exactly what it was going for. It's like, this is just an adventure of a movie. You'll laugh along. Um, but there's no, like th- there's, this movie won't won't be remembered, I guess, in, in the greater future, the future of, of 
Cohen movies or Trisha Cook movies. Trisha Cooks, Cooks cooked. I guess she cooked. She cooked. did cook. I think a it's bit. cooked with an E. She she was cooking. There was things she that was she was cooking. cooking. She was she I was th- cooking up some fun stuff. I think that if they end up making, um, they talked in the interview that I read about making a, a trilogy of lesbian based movies, and if they sort of find the formula with the next two, I could see people watching this to be like, oh, there's sort of the primordial soup of what they found later going on. I could see it as like a, an academic thing more than a, more than a fan favorite. Like, like you said about cult classics, I don't think that this is going to be, but I'm a cheerleader or whatever for the next generation of teenage girls. Yeah. I, I a hundred percent agree. Like this is, I, this is some good stepping stones towards something that I think had a lot of potential and maybe with a, a one or two more movies. I said in the last review on Friday that, you know, one thing that we learned from this movie is they should, the Coen brothers should probably get together. I don't necessarily think that after my second view. And I think they're fine. He's finding something else with his new partner. Well, I guess it's his wife. So not really a new partner, but sort of with a different person. And I think that there's a lot of potential to get something else through mm-hmm. these movies, especially like for these lesbian experiences movies that we don't necessarily see. Like there's very few of them. There's a lot of gay movies now that are coming out, uh, which, you know, which is always good. We're always a big fan of that. We want to see more different types of cultures and different sort of sexualities in mainstream movies. Uh, so this, I think this is a very good stepping stone towards uh, that. And I like that this is sort of a Gen Z transition into Coen Brothers movies, because especially with Coen Brothers movies, I mean, when they first burst onto the scene, they were in like all of the Academy Awards every year or whatever. They would always be nominated for something. And now there's sort of that there was this fall off before they split up. And you didn't really get this when it came to movies. But like if a Coen Brothers movie came out, if you're like a cinephile or you're super into movies, oh, you've got to go see that movie. So, I mean, maybe this is a huge stepping point for Gen Z's to sort of get into this newer type of frame. I do think it's very funny that uh, we're two white guys on Friday talking about this movie. So, obviously, we had to bring in another white guy to talk about uh, a lesbian <laughs> interracial couple movie. Uh, but, yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that. What, what do you think about, like, this for the future of uh, the Coen brothers themselves or movies like this in general? I agree that there is like a different distinct style like and I and I agree with what you were saying about like there's been more gay movies being made but I think that there's a lack of gay movies and a lack of Cohen movies two very similar topics that are like as um, intentionally trashy as this and I mean that in a positive way like I love trash like movies that are like violent about people who in the climax of the movie like sell a man's severed head for a million dollars and they're just gonna do that like i think that's great i think that there should be more not necessarily that there should be more but i think that it's good that there's a space for gay movies that are uh like sleazy like that I, I like sleaze. I, and I think that that's another thing that's missing from Cohen's movies. And you disagree with this or you're going to disagree with this. But like the movie's sexy. Like, and obviously, if you're making movies with your brothers, you probably don't want to shoot like a really horny movie with your brother. So like, I think that it 
it could reveal sort of a different aspect of um, Ethan's capabilities as a film writer, as a filmmaker, or as a screenwriter if he works with Trisha Moore. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, yeah, no, no, no. I, I completely agree with you, and I, I want to see more of her. Like, totally. I think we got like this interesting framework again. Like, it's a, it's a her movie framed through this Cohen sort of perspective, but like, it was a lot of her. Like, this is something that you really did not see a lot of Cohen esque movies. Aside from like a lot of the characters, like the villains and such, mm-hmm. they're very, very Cohen. Even the script is sort of, it's a lot of her, but you got these gags, and especially with the violence too. I agree with you. Like right from the start, I mean, the beginning of the movie is the grossest part of the movie, and there was just like a lot of, you know, people having sex throughout this movie, which I, I know a lot other people might not think is gross to watch. But I'm not necessarily a big fan of that, but like it's the most violent part of the movie. It sets up this this strange vaudeville esque thing. So yeah, I agree with you too. Like, I think that this could be good. I hope more people see this. Not necessarily because it's a great movie, just because you want that space. You want that space to create these these types of movies. So I'm, sure. I'm totally here for it. What did you um, What did you eventually rate this movie by the end of it? What What was your overall thoughts? Uh, my overall thoughts. Uh, it's not great. Uh, I gave it. I gave it three. And I think that's partly because, like, it's so messy, but it's so likable, and it's so earnestly trying something. Like, it's in throwing everything at the wall like it does, like the 70s shit and the 90s stuff and the modern stuff. I think that there's enough energy and enough goodwill that it generated that I ended up positive on it. More positive than uh, it maybe deserved on its making modes i give it three stars i liked it it was a good time i i I liked it too and i'm glad you said 70s because this did feel like sort of that b movie raunchy 70s type of style movie based or made in 2023 or 2024 set in the 90s but it was super 70s like Mm -hmm. the whole overall vibe of the movie Uh, on my second watch uh, i liked it i think even more so i did originally give it three i'm going to give it a three and a half because i think the movie did it sets itself up to be exactly what it's going to be it did exactly what it wanted to do very messy there's a lot of parts missing but on a second watch i I enjoyed it even more i laughed even more which i i thought i wasn't going to do but i enjoyed a lot more of the jokes there's still things that definitely were missing but overall yeah i think it's a it's a good movie lacks a lot of great filmmaking like you said but it, it overall it's a very fun fun movie so yeah i would recommend it three and a half stars from me yeah, if somebody asked me, should I go see this? Uh, I think that the kind of person who would be interested in seeing Driveway Dolls is probably the kind of person who's going to like Driveway Dolls well enough. Yeah, 100%. I, I totally agree with you. I'd love to get a woman's opinion on this, by the way. <laughs> if, you, if you're a, a lady listening to this movie, uh, feel free to say, hey, I want to be on the podcast. Come on, tell me your thoughts on Driveway Dolls because uh, I've only heard dudes' opinions on this movie, and it, I don't necessarily think that's the the main demographic for a movie like this. But overall, it's a good time. Uh, but I, we just did a Coen Brothers draft before we had you on this, uh, so you did end up missing that. But I know you're a big Coen Brothers fan. Maybe, They're maybe my babes. are you? They are there my you babes, go, one hundred percent. So why don't you give me your top three, top five Coen Brothers movies, uh, and a little about why you chose those movies. Uh, absolutely. So, you you sent me a note earlier today, uh, giving me a heads up that this was going to happen. Little did you know, I keep a list of my favorite Cohen movies ranked 
just in case if this were to arise. Oh, there you go. So number one, uh, Inside Lewin Davis is my favorite movie, or at least it's the one that I go to when people ask what my favorite movie is. Um, I think that that movie speaks to the topic of mediocrity and failure in a way that like almost no other movie that I've seen does. And that sounds like really host. It sounds like it's a really condemning statement, but like there's, there's lots of movies about like Otis, right? And there's lots of movies about like Otis who are massively successful, but like, there's not a lot of movies about Otis who are like really, really, really trying and just aren't hitting. And, like, you can see that there's the talent, but there's just something a little bit off-putting about them. And, like, there's, like, there's, I'm a huge music guy. There's a lot of bands that I really love where I'm like, okay, I can see why this doesn't hit with people. Like, these guys should be hit makers, but I understand why there's not. There's something that is a little off-putting to other people. I think that that, and I think that that movie speaks to sort of that experience, but also the experience of just, like, being uh of being human like as broad as that sounds like uh it's really touching and the way like lewin as a character is he's unlikable and he's flawed but he's unlikable in a very real way where like he's he seems like a guy that you would know and even a guy that you might hang out with and a guy that you'd like but a guy that you would say you could imagine saying, man, you really got to get your act together after like a long night on the town in like a, in like a really sincere way. And you could tell he's not believing what you're saying, but like you really mean it. Do you know, do you know what I mean by that? Does that make sense? Have you seen that movie? Totally. I have. I have. I actually, when I first asked you what your favorite movie was uh, about Lou and David, that's a whole nother story, that stupid joke. But, um, (laughs) I, I actually had watched it like recently after you said that uh, or before you said that, like, like maybe that a month or so two before. <laughs> it, it is a very good movie. I'm going to say, I think that goes undrafted. We're recording this before the draft. I think that one might actually go undrafted. That's crazy to me. Okay. Okay. It's not, well, a, it's not on my top five, but it is like a fantastic movie. And you know what? After you're telling me this, I might, I might go rewatch it. That uh, is, before the draft. That is why the Coens are my favorite guys, is because if somebody were to tell you their top fives, you like any five, you could be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Those are all great movies. Yeah, 100%. They, they are like, I, I understand why they're people's favorite movies or favorite filmmakers or why they were in so much of the Academy Award buzz. I don't necessarily think they won a ton of them, but like there were, they have such a, a broad spectrum. And like even when I was, when I was going, making my list they have so many movies like totally they have a ton of movies and when i was making my bottoms i even liked a lot of those movies it, it was an, they have a very interesting filmography and a pretty great filmography they have some sure. iconic characters some iconic movies some iconic lines they're one of the most iconic filmmakers of like ever i'd say so it i, I totally agree with you it's a great movie Speaking of iconic lines, iconic characters, number two, Big Lebowski. I'm sure that one went drafted. Everybody knows why it's great. It's <laughs> maybe the funniest movie ever made. You watch it every time you watch it, it gets funnier. The plot, I've seen it like six times. I still don't really know what it's about. There's too much that goes on in it. 
every character who's on screen for more than eight seconds is funny. Uh, there's never a moment of that movie that's not delivering. Uh, yeah, it has like, like a the... top three uh, John Goodman, which would be faint praise for any actor who's not John Goodman. Oh, 100%. He, that, ooh, that's you know, maybe a John Goodman draft in the future one day. <laughs> I think that's like the greatest retelling of Sherlock Holmes in history and also just one of the, the best stoner movies of all time. I'm not Absolutely. necessarily a big stoner movie guy, but like that movie hits even if you're not. Like it's just, it might be one of the most quotable movies ever made. Yeah, every line's funny. Uh, number three, Bone After Reading. I love oh, this that's movie. Oh, pretty high. At, Bone After Reading is... Like, I don't think that Lebowski's kind of like a total package thing, where, like, Lebowski's funny, and you're just sort of amazed at, like, the construction of it. I think that Bone After Reading is the funniest movie in terms of jokes for jokes. And I love, like, mean, nasty comedy. Bone After Reading's, like, the meanest movie ever made. It treats it's everybody very rude. so badly. It's a very rude movie. <laughs> They're so me. I, I did like one thing about Driveway Dolls is they have sort of a, a I'm not going to say, I guess, spoil it, the a Brad Pitt in the Closet movie or part to it. Oh, absolutely. And that so Brad, there, there you go. That Brad Pitt scene, when I saw it for the first time, I laughed so loud that I woke up people in my house and they came down <laughs> to like tell me off. Uh, that has. That, I think that's my favorite pit. I think that's my favorite pit. I think that's George Clooney's best performance as like a comedy guy. Yeah. My only other choice for favorite pit would be Snatch. But uh, I was about to say maybe Snatch. I guess for comedy wise, yeah, this is probably his best best one. And he's, my, he's got some stellar ones too. He's so good. He's the best. D- yeah, I I like Brad Pitt. Ignore the personal good, solid actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ignore, ignore everything around him. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I agree. He's 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 uh, he's definitely in the. I'd, would you say he's in the top ten for actors? Oh, for sure. He'd he'd be in my top ten at least. Yeah, he's definitely like the movie star. Like if you if you had to say what's what's the baseline for an A list celebrity, it's Brad Pitt probably. For sure. Like, which is crazy because he was also the example used in like that don't impress me much like thirty years ago. <laughs> like his star has not diminished. Yeah, he got roasted. Roasted the same way he did in Burn After Eden, that song. <laughs> you really did. So you think you're Brad Pitt? Get out of here. Number four, Good No movie, Country though. for Old Men. Uh, sort of the opposite of Burn After Eating, where it's no jokes. Not a very funny movie. Very low on the wacky factor. But, uh, like, obviously just so intense. Such a good... The Coens are such good... Um, they're so good at putting you in a location, like probably most famously with Fogo, where they really sell North Dakota. But No Country for Old Men sells modern Texas as like a Western outlaw country so effectively. And it makes everything feel so dangerous all the way through. Like there's not a moment in that movie that's without at least a little bit of tension. And obviously yeah. like a huge amount of that's Bo Dem, who's horrifying in that movie. But like it, even the atmosphere itself is so oppressive all the way through. I love the, 
I know some people are sort of mixed on the ending monologue by Tommy Lee Jones in that movie. I adore it. I think that that like makes the movie entirely. And I think that um, something that you guys have talked about with a lot of their movies, I think that No Country is one of the ones that benefits the most from going back to again and again. Because even if its plot isn't as convoluted as like Lebowski's, uh, it feels so dense in terms of atmosphere and in terms of conveying character with little turns of phrase or whatever. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. That is like one of the most iconic villains. And I think equally as scary as Javier Bardem is in that movie, it is the location of the movie. The setting of the movie is equal parts a villain or as anxiety inducing as this character walking around with a lock picking thing. Like it's, it's one of those, I know you love movies that build anxiety and just have a lot of tension. I'm not necessarily a big fan of them, but uh, when I do like them, which is a lot of the movies I'd say you recommend to me that are anxious and tension <laughs> building. Uh, they, they're like, they hit so well. And I think it's more impressive that it's a movie that can build that and still even have someone like me, who's not necessarily a huge fan of that equally as excited about that movie or super stoked about that movie. And I think you're right. That's a movie where, you know, you can go back and rewatch and it's still equally iconic. Um, I'm super, I think that was like one of the, before maybe Heath Ledger, like to build a villain like that was so terrifying. It could really like propel people over the line into like superstardom. For sure. Which is one thing I'm super curious about Austin Butler uh, in Dune 2 coming out. Apparently he's being praised as like, oh, this might be like the next Joker sort of character. And that, that's someone's career I've been really interested in following. So I'm hoping... Hoping he, get, he delivers a solid villain performance. But uh, yeah, No Country for Old Men is definitely in my top five. So there you go. No spoilers for the draft, even though this is after the draft. <laughs> and then I got, I got, I got one more for you. Um, and this is going to be, I think, kind of a left field pick. Um, my number five is going to be A Serious Man. Have you seen A Serious Man? I haven't yet. I was we actually were... watching it tomorrow. I was we going to watch it today about... until the draft. Um before we got on the recording, we were talking about The Curse. And A Serious Man is the movie that I think most closely approximates um, the feeling of your entire life going wrong all at once with combining that with a strong sense of Jewish identity like The Curse does. A Serious Man is also like a, an absurdly mean movie just to just to one guy but the the point of it is just how wrong Larry Gopnik's life is going this poor like unfettered guy who does not have the capabilities to deal with what life is throwing at him right now and you watch him squirm and you feel so bad for him the whole time but you can't help but laugh because he's so ineffectual at dealing with everything that's coming at him you you hear about Cy Abelman at the start of the movie, and then when you meet Cy Abelman later on, you're like, really? Really? This is it? You'll, you'll know what I mean once you see it. Okay. I, okay. I love that movie. I feel like that movie's less talked about than a lot of their movies. It feels underrated to me. I haven't I haven't seen it yet, so they, that's that maybe that's a proof of what you're saying there. It is on my list. I have, uh, I think, I have to rewatch Barton Fink, too, because I haven't seen that one in a while, but... So that that is what I'm watching. I'm excited for that. Then there you go. 
I hope you dig it. That's my top five. <laughs> uh, before we go, any movie you want to recommend to people to see? Um, <laughs> Inside Lewin Davis, I guess. I don't know. Whoa. Oh, oh, actually, I've got a good one. I got a good one that I watched this last week. Um, on the topic of movies that are super intense, I watched a movie from 1971, an Australian movie called Wake and Fight, which is about a... I won't go too long on it. It's about an Australian school teacher who's teaching in a small town. He usually lives in Sydney. He gets sent out by the government to teach in various outback towns that don't have teachers. Uh, misses his flight back to Sydney and uh, finds himself in a town where there's nothing to do but drink and gamble and fight. And uh, he drinks and he gambles and he fights. And it's all yeah. about this guy's life uh, falling apart in front of him. It's great. It's it's super intense. <laughs> the maybe look up. Uh, there's look up a content advisory before you watch it. There's some. It it has some. It has footage of hunting that was taken on real hunting trips. That's pretty graphic, and I think that it works because it's shown in like a negative light as like a isn't this awful? But if you don't want to watch that, like you're not gonna enjoy it. But aside from that, I wholeheartedly recommend it. Super intense movie, really draining movie, like a real life is hopeless movie. If that's your kind of vibe, can't, can't recommend it higher. Wake and fight. All right. And my recommendation will be another Australian movie, Emo the Musical. Go on. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I'll visit the big podcast. Bye-bye.